Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Dom Van Natta. We have a big treat for you today. Our guest is Alex Belth. Alex has been praised as a New York treasure by the Village Voice for his work at Bronx Banter, a blog about living in the city and rooting for the Yankees. He warmed up for a life of cultural exploration by working in the film business for Woody Allen, the Cone Brothers, and Ken Burns. Belf is the author of Stepping Up, a biography of Kurt Flood, The Dudes Abide, a Kindle single about the making of The Big Lebowski, and Alex is the editor of The Best Sports Writing of Pat Jordan and Yankee Stadium Memories. He's written for Sports Illustrated, Variety, Esquire, and Deadspin, and his story on an iconoclastic sports writer George Kimball was included in the Best American Sports Writing of 2012. Alex's work as an archivist began with The Stacks in 2002, a site that is devoted to curating and reprinting classic sports writing. And in that same vein, Alex is about to introduce, we're recording this on Thursday, but on Sunday when this podcast drops, Alex will introduce to the world thestacksreader.com, which will be a great home for wonderful journalism and and sports writing uh, that he has curated hundreds of pieces and we can't wait to see that so alex after that very long introduction welcome to the podcast hey don thanks so much i appreciate you having me man oh no i'm i'm thrilled to have you and uh you know we were talking before we started here you you and i have been in touch with each other and emailing each other but this is the first time we've actually heard each other's voices we haven't we haven't met uh, yet and uh, and we look forward to doing that. So I'm just thrilled to have you on here, and it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Cool, man. So I asked a lot of folks about you. You have, uh, I think it's fair to say, Alex, that you're beloved by just about everybody that I talk to. Uh, and I I heard these descriptions of you from various editors and writers that uh, we both know. One person called you a force of nature. Somebody else said you're a kind, smart, generous guy. A third person said you're a wonderfully animated and articulate proselytizer of great journalism. And I, th- I think my description of you is, is quite simple. You're America's curator laureate. Uh, I mean, you really are. And, uh, and, and, but how you got to this place is really fascinating because your own description for yourself is just avid enthusiast. And when you were a kid, uh, it was baseball cards and comic books and rock and roll and jazz albums and novelists and painters and all sorts of stuff. And, and you were telling me that actually it was a way for you to connect with your dad who was otherwise shut down. Tell, tell our audience about that, about how you first got into collecting great things and wanting to tell people about them. Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, my father was born in 1937 in New York, and um, he was somebody who was, you know, a huge theater fan. He was very into um, going to plays, into movies, into books. And by the time I came around, there was parts of his childhood that were difficult for him to talk about, but it was always easy to engage him about things that were interested, he was interested in. So whether that was Harry Belafonte or Danny Kaye or Walt Kelly, who did the Pogo cartoons, you know, these were things well before my era. I mean, I was born in 1971. Who the hell knew about Pogo in the 70s or 80s, you know? (laughs) But nevertheless, you know, that idea of going back uh, was something that was instilled in me very early on. Even the books in my house, I remember, you know, as a little kid looking for like nudie pictures, you know, and my dad had a 
like the illustrated Beatles. And I think there was some like, you know, so you could see some boobs or something in that, you know. So even things like that, you know, like you're, you're foraging, you know, through record collections and book collections. And I came from a family, at least my father's family here in New York, you know, everyone in, had a library, everyone had books. Uh, so you, I grew up with the idea of having collections being an important part of your identity. Um, so the, my cultural interest sort of began there, but I, I will say also my mom is Belgian and uh, she was born just uh, during the Second World War, uh, but spent most of her childhood in the Congo. Um, uh, she lived there from the time she was three to the time she was 16. And um, although later on when I, you know, I'm a, a tree-hugging liberal from the Upper West Side, you know, my, my, my thoughts and my ideas of colonialism were shaped by, by my political sensibilities. And in the 80s, I remember I had like the five foot by five foot Keith Haring Free South Africa poster, you know, on my bedroom wall uh, and would often bust my mom's chops about, you know, being a colonialist swine or something like that, you know. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, my grandparents really pined for the 1950s in colonial uh, Congo. Um, so take apart the, uh, any kind of political ramifications of that, but I grew up with the idea of they had saved things from the Congo. And it could have been just, uh, you know, a salt box or, you know, mundane sort of items, but the idea of treasure, and when I would go to visit them in Belgium, there would be attics and garages filled with old things and often they'd be broken down you know like an eight millimeter film projector and you'd find it but you know the the battery didn't you know the, you know the bulb didn't work or whatever the heck it was but that notion of searching for treasure was i think something that was instilled in me very early on it's, it's really interesting and so when you were a kid what did you want to be when you grew up Man, I guess it depended on the week. You know, in fifth grade, I wanted to be Richard Leakey, and you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was a I was a big sports fan, but I also knew I wasn't a good enough athlete to think of that. I think I probably, you know, it's funny because my father worked as a in the television industry, and he worked as as a producer in TV, and I think more than anything, he really wanted to be famous, and so I think that there was part of me that was very influenced by that. And uh, growing up, I think, depending on what my interest was in the moment, either being a painter or writing or, uh, you know, I could fantasize about just being famous in, in some sort of way. Uh, but I think, I, you know, by the time I got to be a teenager, I wanted to be a, a film director. And, um, and, and that, again, was part of because my dad had worked in that business and he revered uh, Hollywood, if not the place, then the industry in a certain way. And, um, and I have a cousin who is, is a film editor. And by the time I was 17, I had gotten a, a job in the summer working in the Brill Building. That was in 1988. And Scorsese had his offices there. And they were cutting Last Temptation of Christ. And Married to the Mob was finishing uh, you know, post-production at that time. So getting into the film business in my teenage years, I thought, well, you know, eventually I'll become a famous movie director, right? You know, that's what Robert Wise did, you know? Yeah, and you worked for both Woody Allen and the Coen brothers um, in your 20s. I'm sure there's a, a million great stories there. Um, what was your impression of the Coen brothers? I'm huge fans of theirs. Well, actually, when I uh, went to work for them, I was 25, and Fargo had come out a couple of months before that. 
And I, at that point, was not really a Coen Brothers fan. Uh, I had never gotten that Barton Fink feeling, and uh, something about Barton Fink had just like soured me on those guys. So I hadn't, did I see Hudsucker Proxy? I'm not sure, but I certainly hadn't seen Fargo at that time. You had, well, you had not seen I had not, and, and, it was, oh, okay. and that had come out like in the spring of 96, and I met them in the summer of 96. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, the movie was really well received and it had done really well, but I just wasn't interested enough. Um, so there was an element of having met in meeting them where I wasn't completely starstruck, where I, I could have been starstruck with any number of other folks. Um, and they were just a really approachable, good, good guys. I mean, they were nerdy guys. Interestingly, they, they definitely felt Jewish and they definitely lived in New York, but they were not Jewish New Yorkers as I knew Jewish New Yorkers to be. You know, these guys were definitely from the middle of the country somewhere there was right. a lot of there was a lot of silences there you know as opposed to being you know huggers and smoochers and schwitzers and the whole bit <laughs> like that you know what i mean um yeah. but they were really great guys and i remember like one of the first days working with them some there was a, a dvd of fargo that came in that they needed to check like something technical on and i so they watched like i don't know the first five minutes of it and so i was sitting there watching them and they just were cracking up I mean, it was like, and that was sort of the experience that I had seeing them, you know, either in the editing room or occasionally on the set, uh, was that they were their own best audience. It was like they were like fourth grade kids putting on a play. Oh, that's you know? great. And I so inst it. instantly they were like good guys, you know, and they were like, oh, this is not going to be like some ego trip, you know, that you're dealing with. It's not Hollywood stuff. And as, as a matter of fact, most everyone who ever who worked with them, at least when I was there, I mean, they all just took huge salary cuts just because it was such a pleasurable experience. And what was your first impression of Woody Allen? Oh, well, you know, uh, Jewish Upper West Side, New Yorker, you know, of course I grew up, you know, with Woody as one of my heroes. Um, so you were starstruck when you first met No, Woody. actually I wasn't oh, really? because, yeah, I had turned on Woody, I think Radio Days is really the last Woody movie I liked. And even that I didn't like at the time. But I didn't even like Crimes and Misdemeanors, which a lot of people really liked. Oh, I really like that movie. Yeah, and then Husbands and Wives and all that stuff. You know, those ones. That you those get dark movies, yeah. Yeah, and they're all handheld and you get seasick. But like, I, so my Woody, like, adoration period was done. So I suppose, and it didn't really have anything to do with his personal life as much as just aesthetically, I didn't really look up to him. Whereas at that time, like I would have felt differently about Scorsese. Okay. Right. Uh, yep. So when I went to work for him, it was more amusing um, because he was a very regimented guy. He came into the cutting room uh, at a certain time every day. I worked on a movie called Everyone Says I Love You, which was a musical. Oh yeah. And um, fun film. That's a lot of fun, that movie. Yeah. And he had, he had shot that in Europe. So they needed some extra hands to, cause this was when they were still cutting on film. They needed somebody to help an apprentice to help sink the dailies. Uh, so he was somebody who never really seemed that he liked being in the editing room all that much. Um, it was sort of a chore for him. Uh, and I think I was there for like, I don't know, a month before, I mean, no one introduced me to him, but he was there every day. So eventually I just talked to him about the Knicks because I knew he was at the game every night, you know? And then, you know, when I talked to him, you know, he would talk about Frasia and Monroe, you know, and, you know, he, he was, he was a perfectly fine guy to chat with, but, you know, he, he was just a removed guy. He was somebody who was, he didn't really deal with the quote unquote little people. He didn't have the common touch, I would say, with his crew, you know, but he wasn't like sur surly or a jerk or anything like that. He was just sort of aloof. 
Now, uh, what I'm curious about is, have you been able to apply anything you learn from working with the Cone Brothers and Woody Allen in, in what you're doing now? Uh, Woody, not so much. Although one thing that was interesting about Woody is that, uh, especially because I worked for the Cone Brothers right after him, and you know they storyboard everything that they do. And I remember aesthetically always feeling like there was something so controlled about that the, mm-hmm. the storyboard feeling in the Cone Brothers movie. And then I realized they do that for... Or, or at least they, they, they did it for economic reasons, so that if you storyboard a scene, then your production designer, your costume designer, the set builders, they all know what they have to build and not build. So uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't that they were frugal, although they, were, they came from low budget, but it was that idea of not wasting money. Whereas I remember working on, for Woody, I remember hearing his line producer talk one day about, you know, he would just have these big sets made and then he would just sort of show up and figure out how he wanted to do it anyway like little things like that i thought wow that was i never knew that you know i didn't know that about the that that's why the cohen's do that and beyond that the best thing i learned from the cohen's was just that you can be a decent person and still be really ambitious and get the work done that you want to get done you don't really have to be a tyrant and you don't need to have you know your producer be a tyrant on your behalf either uh, I mean, for me, just from a creative point of view, because I was working in the editing room, one of the things that was very instructive when people were cutting on film is that things just took a lot of time to physically do. So if you wanted to make a change in a scene, you actually had to go into the actual work print, cut it, you know, make the, the changes. And so if two days later, if you wanted to revert to something, you would, it would take time. It would actually take manpower to get that done. Now, of course, if you're cutting online, you can have an infinite amount of variations. But there was something about those hard um, obstacles coming up against that that really forced you to make creative decisions and move forward. And so that was an interesting thing, you know, uh, just watching the the, that process sort of unfold uh, for me was always really fascinating. I mean, I didn't do anything creative on those movies. I just got access to keep my eyes and ears open and watch how they worked. So at 31, you you started at Time Inc. and you're working on accounting. And when you got the job at Time Inc., were you thinking to yourself, okay, this would maybe be a great gateway at some point to doing journalism myself to writing? I mean, did you have that burning inside of you and in the back of your mind when you first walked into Time Inc.? had fuck all idea of what I was going to do. I mean, I really did. I did not know what I was going to do. I just knew that, okay, I'm young enough at 30. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids yet. You know, that I, I know I don't want to do the film business thing. And it's a hustle. I mean, it's a real hustle. If you don't want to work for 16 hours a day for Spike Lee or Scorsese, fine. There's 25 other people behind you who do, you know? So I knew well enough what I didn't want, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, And when the, I started a blog, even though I knew I was at Time Inc., I didn't even necessarily have ambitions to be a writer or an editor. Uh, I just knew at that time uh, the Yankees had come off this, this great run of success, and it, it was felt like something that I could write about. And growing up, uh, I did read, uh, I came from this bookish family, as I mentioned, but I didn't really dig reading for a long time. So for my birthday, you know, I would always get sports books, Roger Angel, Roger Kahn, you know, Donald Honig, all those baseball books. So I, I think when I started the blog, I started to just dive back into that world about, of baseball writers. And, uh, and that sort of began my education uh, in journalism. I mean, I was obviously aware of 
magazines like GQ or Esquire or Harper's and had read them growing up, but I was never interested in journalists. So I didn't really know all that much about journalism, which was great uh, in that I had all of this stuff ahead of me. Right. And Brock's banter when you first started it, Alex, was a blog about living in the city and, and the Yankees, but then it, it morphed right over time into being a place where you were curating, you know, serious literature, sports journalism, right? I mean, it didn't start that way, right? It was about the, really, was it, was it a fan blog? Is that fair to say in the beginning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at, the, at that time, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I certainly, I, I, was, I looked at some of the other baseball blogs. There were some team blogs. There was an awful lot of guys who, you know, either if they came out of baseball prospectus or an analytical sort of frame of mind. And I thought, well, wow, this is a very democratic kind of landscape here. You can kind of do... You can just be yourself. And so I modeled my approach after Roger Angel. Uh, not that I was trying to be Roger Angel or could ever profess to write as fluidly as he does, but the idea of being a fan in the stands and speaking to your own experience. I said, well, I can own that. I can do that. And so that's really what I did. But for the first couple of years, it was really much more of a straight Yankee site. I mean, I had other folks write on the site with me, and we really concentrated on the Yankees. Uh, but as this sort of unfolded, I started to educate myself in sports journalism of the last 20, 30, 40 years. And along the way, started to befriend uh, writers and editors, particularly folks that were a little bit older, maybe in their 60s <laughs> through their 90s. My wife had that this recurring line where she would be like, uh, Alex, some old guy called for you. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and what I found is that writers and editors of a certain generation, I wouldn't say, were, I wouldn't say that they, they were avuncular necessarily, although I became close friends with quite a few of them, but there certainly was a custodial feeling of this is the craft, this is what we did during this particular period, and they were happy to either share their own work with me or say, you know, for instance, like I met a guy... John Shulian, who was a, a longtime columnist and he later became a screenwriter. And John was just a fountain of information. He says, well, did you, have you read Pete Dexter? And did you read Richard Ben Kramer? And do you know about Diane Shaw? And all of a sudden, you know, I found myself at the New York Public Library fighting those old uh, rickety uh, microfilm machines and making copies of pieces from magazines that were hadn't existed in years and years. But this was probably in the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. And at that time, unless you were the New Yorker or the New York Times, even major publications didn't have, you know, their archive digitized. So when I was down there, man, you know, I'd be looking for an article by John Ed Bradley, and then all of a sudden I'd find, oh, wow, the Washington Post has a, Great piece on the Leonard Hagler fight by Juan Williams. Juan Williams, isn't that conservative? Like Colin, and then you know it's a it's a bonus piece, and it's a great bonus piece. Or come to find out, yeah, Tony Kornheiser had chops as a as a bonus piece writer. Skip Bayless had you know guys that you sort of know in now. Yeah, Bayless, you know, Bayless had the Cowboys locker room wired in the early nineties. Oh my God! Yeah, or, or, and was or somebody a great like long form writer. Or, or, or someone like Rick Riley, you know, yeah. even before SI, you know, the stuff he was doing at the LA Times, or Richard yep. Hoffer. God, Richard Hoffer is like quietly like one of my favorite SI writers. I love Hoffer. Yeah, because Hoffer he's could awesome. do it. And he could do everything. You know, he's yep. like a real five tool player guy. Uh, 
so you're in the New York Public Library. We we got to really we got to pause here at this moment because I love this. So did Shulian send you there? I mean, how did you end up there? Well, I got a contract to write a young adult book about Kurt Flood, and this was in like '04. So I think just through needing to do some research in old sport magazines or inside sports, that sent me to the New York Public Library. Okay. And okay. I don't think I had ever really messed with microfilm. Like maybe in college, I don't know. I mean. Uh, so you're looking for Kurt Flood clips, yeah, right, and, on microfilm. And, and then and I, I couldn't get through an issue because I said, well, look, I'm looking for this article on Lou Brock or Bill White or one of his Cardinal teammates. And now I see this guy, Arnold Haino. Who's this? I keep seeing his name. Oh, and now he's writing about Clemente. Now he's writing about Lou Alcindor, you know. And I just started just Xeroxing story after story uh, and really being, look, I, 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 it wasn't as if, Every story that I found was great literature, but I, you know, I, I, I grew up as a huge Pauline Kael fan, the great New Yorker film critic, and she always advocated uh, for a love of trash, you know, and so there's something great about pop culture that doesn't purport to be anything, doesn't purport to be literature, but it's just a really good story. Um, and in some, time, in some cases, you'd find stories that weren't really very well written, but God, they had so much access to the guy, you know, guys hanging out, you know, reporters hanging out with the subject for a week and a half. So there's some value. I found value in these things, even if they weren't necessarily great literature, all of them. You're, you're finding great stuff, but you're not keeping it to yourself. You're making those copies you're making, you're turning into PDFs and you're sending them around to friends, right? So your, your first sort of experience as a curator who wants to share, who has this need to share when it comes to sports journalism anyway, is actually occurring in the New York Public Library. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember in my 20s, I, I, I used to go to like all these record shops in Manhattan, you know, they, they would sell like, you know, old soul and like hip hop records. And these guys in there, man, they were way beyond high fidelity dudes. I mean, these guys were such snobs and they were so cool. And they always wanted you to know that they knew how cool they were and they knew how uncool you were. And until you got cool, they would not share with you this cool stuff that they knew, you know. And I always thought, you know, bollocks to those dudes, man. You know, yeah. if I'm into something, I want to like, I mean, I'll give out flyers on the train to somebody, you know. Uh, for me, I've always been of the mind, if there's something that I'm interested in, I'm like a Pied Piper. You know, I, I remember when I worked in the movie business in my 20s and I would have like access to a Xerox machine, whatever it was I was interested in at the time, you know, something I was reading, uh, I would always be making copies and pawning them off on <laughs> on anyone that I knew that I thought might be interested just because I always felt that that's sort of a way to live in the world is to share your enthusiasms as, as opposed to hoard them. And around this time then, is that when Bronx Banter, your blog, starts transitioning over to being a place where you can find great sports journalism just sort of naturally? Yeah, you know, I think also naturally what happened was is that I got bored about writing about the Yankees and baseball uh, in, in you know, after you do it for four or five years, geez, what else can you say? You know, right. uh, it's really, it's not that interesting. At least for me, it wasn't. So again, sort of opening the banter up to my other interests just seemed like a natural. And what ended up happening is, is in becoming friends with some of these writers, and in, in, in some cases, not the writers, but their family, uh, like Gail Hines, who's the great W.C. Hines's daughter, or Susan Lardner, who was John Lardner's uh, daughter, um, I, I I don't remember the first story I reprinted, but I asked one of the, my writer friends, hey, would you would you mind if I reprint this on Bronx Banter? And when I got their blessing, I thought, well, hey, this is a cool thing. Now if somebody, this doesn't exist on the internet, you know? So right. now yep. 
if somebody is doing a Google search, they could find such and such. And I thought, well, that feels cool. And I started to do it a little bit here and there, you know, just because it was something that interested me. I don't even know if the Bronx banter readers gave a shit or not. Uh, a certain amount of the audience was, was just there for the baseball stuff. Uh, but So you weren't monitoring the metrics of it and finding out how many people were actually clicking on these stories? Not really, because at a yeah. certain point that just was like, the, there lies the way of madness, you know, uh, just... <laughs> you know, constantly checking to see how many people are looking. And and also, you know, it's not as if I thought that reprinting uh, an old story was the way to get a mass audience. You know, I could say A-Rod, you know, has a small dick and I could get readers. But, you know, like, right. I don't know if a W.C. Hines story is going to, you know, drive like hundreds of thousands of clicks. But that really wasn't the point of it. The point of it was uh, to give a new home to something that would have otherwise been neglected or forgotten. And so when Bronx Banter turned 10 years old, I, I ran a series of reprints um, from a bunch of folks that I knew. I think I ran 20 or 30 of them, you know, over the course of a month, you know. And that's when Tommy Craggs, who was running a Deadspin at the time, approached me about starting a reprint site for them, which I did, which I started in 2013, and we decided to call that The Stacks. And the stuff that I was going to do for Deadspin would concentrate on reprinting sports pieces, um, although they've been gracious enough to let me put lots of other pop culture stuff in there as well. Um, and then off the strength of that, for about a year and a half, I did a, a ver variation of the stacks uh, for, the, for the Daily Beast. And that was much more arts and entertainment uh, material. So actually, the reason to start the Stacks Reader now is because I've reprinted stories at these three various places, both my own site and, and the Daily Beast and Deadspin. And I, I want to have all that stuff under one roof. And so moving forward, I just want to have a destination where things that would ordinarily have been discarded have a place to live. Does that and that's going to be the Stacks Reader's Correct. You know, uh, mandate and, and home for all of these wonderful pieces um that that's begin sunday yeah that's right and you know the, the stuff that i've done for the stacks actually led me to get a gig with esquire to run their digital archive and i've done that for the last two years and i mean talk about a great <laughs> talk about a trove you know it doesn't really get much better than a magazine like esquire but one of the things that keeps coming through time and again doing that work is the idea of th that fame is just so fleeting. I mean, I, this is, and this goes across the board, you know, like John Dos Passos, you know, I mean, just colossal in his lifetime. I mean, who's reading John Dos Passos now, you know? Or if you look in the early 90s, I can't tell you how much ink was spilled on like Tom fucking Arnold in the early 90s, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it's just that these, this is the way our culture goes, you know? Yep. Um, but if fame is fleeting as a general rule, I think that that counts goes tenfold for a journalist. Because often my sense is, unless you're in the journalism business, most folks say, oh, did you read that piece in the Times last week? Or did you see that piece in the New Yorker? Often, you know, bylines don't even register. But even for the folks that they do register for, I just found that over the decades, there's just scores and scores of wonderful journalists who, you know, some of them go on to have a, a, a success in, you know, as book writers or screenwriters. And so you end up knowing about them that way. Um, some of them don't ever have that breakout success. But along the way, they lived like, like fascinating lives, did really interesting work. And 
no one's talking about it. I mean, it, it's all, it's, it's as if it didn't exist, you know? Um, so that to me was like a real animating uh, kind of thing for me. Not so much the idea of nostalgia, Don, but preservation. You know, because what, what's that old line in the newspaper business? What you write today is used to wrap tomorrow's fish. Yeah. I mean, it's the oh, same yeah. thing. It's the same thing with magazines. You know, people say, oh, I got that stack of New Yorkers. Well, when you get through them, what do you do? You throw them out. Or like, for instance, you know, your mother dies or your aunt dies and you go to clean out their house and, and in their garage, you find 15 years worth of gourmet magazines. Right. And you might think, wow, that's really cool. But where, where are you going to put it? I mean, who has, you know, we're constantly like getting rid of stuff in our life and, um, and so that's why, for me, there's a kind of, I feel compelled to say, wait a minute, you know, there's stuff that's worth keeping here, you know, not because things were better, but because the stories that we write along the way give, tell us who we were then, you know, and some stories are dated, of course, because of either attitudes or any number of things, but other stories, you can, you know, you could read, a, you know, a, a John Lardner story and it feels as fresh today as it did 50 years ago. Right. And you mentioned earlier that uh, Shulian was actually, you know, helped you with your journalism education and recommending Pete Dexter and, and so many of these great writers. Who would you tell young people who you discovered in, in this process, uh, who readers may not know, who really stand out to you, who are who among your favorites, the sort of go-to people that, that young people should read from that era? Well, I mean, Pete Dexter is somebody that everyone should read, I think. I mean, he was Completely a columnist. Agree. Yeah, Huge he, Dexter fan. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was just, he, he, he just, ha he was almost like Mariano Rivera. You know, it's like one of those, like, don't try this. Like, you, other people can't do what he, he does. And it's not to suggest that Pete isn't hardworking because he's, he's really one of those worker bee guys, right, seven days a week guy. But he was a really terrific columnist. Um, he did some magazine work. I don't think that Pete would ever recommend anything he wrote for magazines, although there's definitely a couple of pieces, including a, a, the first profile he ever wrote for a magazine was on Norman McLean for uh, Esquire. That's just a fabulous Lion in Winter piece and a fabulous matching of writer and subject. Uh, but it's, it's, it's Dexter's novels that he'll really be most yep. known for. Uh, so, I mean, I would tell anyone to read any novel by Dexter. And if you uh, get a chance, you know, Paper Trails, which is his collection of, of, his, uh, of his columns, is a wonderful collection uh, because you realize that the guy was, he wasn't like Jimmy Breslin or Pete Hamill. He wasn't one of those big-hearted guys. He wasn't like Mike Royko. He was like Flannery O'Connor writing these macabre sort of mordant columns that were often just really, really beautiful. Um, the one person that I found that, uh, I mean, there's so many people whose names I recognize and I was familiar with, but I had never really read their work. Like someone like Chip Brown. I didn't realize how freaking great Chip Brown was, uh, or, or, or someone like, who did, who did Chip Brown write for? Chip Brown wrote for the New York Times Magazine for many, many years, often about like adventure stuff or like stuff in the wilderness. But he wrote some stuff for Esquire. Uh, he won a National Magazine Award for the first story he did for Esquire. Um, and then he wrote a great... That's pretty good, right? Yeah, it's not you bad. Know, well, and I that's think not for, bad. And I think he won it in like 1987 or 88. And I think he said that, you know, at that time in the magazine industry, you know, he never really had to pitch a story again for 20, 25 years <laughs> after that. 
just on the strength of that, you know, which shows you how times have changed. But Chip Brown wrote a colossal piece called The Accidental, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name now. Um, he wrote a great piece about uh, the death of a gay so uh, Navy soldier. Um, I really, The Accidental Martyr uh, for, for Esquire. That was a real like kind of or orchestral kind of piece. And then he's written, he wrote smaller ones. He wrote a profile of Ken Kesey. That's really great. He wrote a great profile of John Edgar Wideman, the novelist and his tumultuous life. Uh, and then there's people like Lynn Darling or Martha Sherrill. And as a matter of fact, that Esquire, one of my favorite writers that I came into was a woman named Helen Lawrenson, who was one of the original, or not, wasn't one of the original, but she was an editor at Vanity Fair in the early 30s, and then wrote this sort of scandalous story for Esquire called Latins Are Lousy Lovers, which came out in 1936, and it sort of debunked the idea of the macho Latin lover. And she wrote features for Esquire in the 50s and 60s. She lived in England, so she, you know, if they were doing something on Mick Jagger or Michael Caine or someone over there, she would be Esquire's, you know, uh, writer. For the, and she was just terrific, you know, and, and that's somebody, uh, you know, have you heard of Eve Babbitts? No. Eve Babbitts is somebody who's sort of having a little bit of a renaissance now because, um, and I'm going to mispronounce her name and I apologize, but uh, a writer, a Vanity Fair writer named Lily Analik, Analik? I'm butchering her name, uh, and I apologize, but she wrote a profile of Eve Babbitts like four or five years ago, and Eve Babbitts was almost like EG, the Edie Sedgwick of, of L.A., you know, but with talent. You know, she was a writer, and she wrote this absolutely charming memoir. It's, I think it's called a novel, but it's a memoir called Eve's Hollywood um, that the New York Review of Book Classics reprinted a couple of years ago, and you... Picture, picture, Joan Did picture a Joan Didion who like drinks, smokes, and like you'd like want to hang out with, you know, like would be really fun, you know, and that's Eve Babbitts. So there's like writers like that, that when you, when you come upon them, you don't discover them obviously because, you know, they, they've already achieved what they did. But if you don't know them and you, and you sort of land upon work like that, man, to me, that's just super exciting, you know? But it is a discovery. I mean, you know, I think you're, I think you're soft selling it a little bit. I mean, it's a discovery. Certainly, it's a discovery to you. But then, what's so great about your discoveries, as you described before, Alex, is you share it. You share these these writers that you know. I've I've learned about terrific writers from the stacks that I had no idea about, or names that I had heard vaguely as a kid, uh, and maybe had even read a piece or two, but wasn't as you know clicked into the bylines at, at the age of 12 or 13 as I should have been, and, yeah. uh, and then discovered them through your, your curation at, at the Stacks. Well, I think growing up, you know, I'm 47, 46 now, uh, but growing up during my formative years, b b before the internet was around, whatever you were interested in, you had to be a real searcher. Yeah. You know, if you were looking for that book, if you're looking for that edition of whatever, or that record, it could take weeks, months, or years before you found it. You know, I, I, there was, I used to have a mental checklist of books. Every time I walked into a used bookstore, I knew I'm looking for this, this, and this, you know? <laughs> and that sort of stopped when the internet came around. Okay, you want to find a book now? Well, you can find it, you know? So that treasure hunting aspect of it uh, sort of got curtailed a little bit and for me that was replaced by finding these older stories you know yeah. and, and and sometimes they would be on microfilm and in other times they would be in old out-of-date book anthologies you know it's not just magazine 
it's not just an adoration of magazines, although that's sort of the primary uh, focus that I have at the stacks, but you know, book anthologies, uh, book excerpts, things that just, I, I guess it's more the idea of things that have been forgotten. But then, Don, what happened was once I started meeting these writers or their kin, and I said, you know, would you mind if I put this story up? And they were into it, you know, and they responded enthusiastically to it. Well, for me, that connection was it. I mean, that, that's really what drives it. Yeah, I mean, you're introducing their work from 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago to a new audience. I mean, you know, what's not to like, right? I mean, it's Well, like- you know, there's certainly writers of a certain era who came from a place where they get paid for what they do. And for the most part, I have, you know, although I do have a little honorarium when I do stuff for the stacks at Deadspin, you know, I haven't been able to pay rights for a lot of these pieces. And for some writers, I'd say it's, I don't know, maybe 10% of the writers I've approached, you know, they've like, like, and you, unless you can pay me, I'm not interested. And that's fair enough. You know, I certainly would never want to do anything that somebody wasn't behind, you know, and certainly, oh, I don't know if you wanted something from Hemingway or, or, or Hunter Thompson or Norman Mailer, yes, you'd have to go through agents and, you know, that, that would be costly. But yes, for the most part, I'm just trying to present uh, a, a good home for stuff. And I, I, when that connection is like we're both on like the same side well to be and i'm not trying to be pious about this or like overly spiritual or whatever but that is like nurturing i mean that's sustenance for me that that's an that's reason enough to do it you know what i mean that good feeling well, the is, other is, thing alex about you and you know this is i'm sure clear to anyone listening right now i mean you know you are authentic you are truly uh, a devotee of this stuff right? It's, it's in your bones. You're passionate about it. And, you know, that's going to come across, you know, when you're call, cold calling somebody, and I'm sure it has many times, some older writer or a, a writer who's passed on, you know, uh, his or her daughter or son uh, in making that kind of a pitch, right? I mean, it, it, you're, you have this irresistible uh, love of this, this kind of thing. And, you know, that's the best calling card there is. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think you're right about that. And I think that uh, most folks are flattered um, that someone's calling and interested. And and it's not just a fanboy call. You're actually, you know, what you're, what you're proposing to do is to take work that's, you know, lost in the mists of time, put it online, and it'll find a new appreciative audience. I mean, that's just, uh, that, that's just incredible. You know, it's so funny because sometimes what gets lost in putting something online and making it digital is you lose the object. You know, you lose the physical magazine. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to do, uh, as a follow-up to the Inside Sports Oral History, I'm going to do an oral history on New York Woman, which was really kind of billed as like an Esquire for women. And it was run by a woman named, started and run by a woman named Betsy Carter, who had been the executive director of Esquire in the early 80s. And that magazine was around for five years, I think like 87 to 92, 93, something like that, you know. And when you look at the actual issues, it's a beautiful book. I mean, they, that was a, it was a just, it was a great looking magazine. Great, Fabian was, uh, or Fabian was their art director. And, and so sometimes the, that is lost when yeah. you're digitizing things. And so, as somebody who likes, I still read physical books, you know, uh, you should see my house. I have... 
<laughs> I do have stacks of magazines that sort of everywhere. Uh, Does it look like a hoarder's house, your, your house? Well, I have a wife who's, let me, let me put it to you this way. I have a Felix Unger, you know, okay? So, <laughs> you know, if you were to look at my wife, and she works in, uh, in a hospital, so she's a very organized person. She's also a very feng shui person. So we have a nice sort of mixing of cultures of, yes, we have a ton of stuff, but we try to keep it as streamlined as possible. And I have a couple of storage rooms, <laughs> which, is the, which is the answer to it. Right, of course. What are some publications from way back when that have been forgotten that you feel deserve to be remembered? Oh, dude. I mean, one that I just found out about. Part of the fun for this for me is that I just keep finding out things that I don't know about. So there was a magazine called Audience that was around for two years in the early 1970s that Jeffrey Ward, you know, uh, the guy who works for Ken Burns, oh, that yeah. He, yeah. he ran, Milt, Milton Glaser was the art director. Rust Hills, who was Esquire's longtime fiction editor, was an editor there. And it was a hardcover book. I think it came out six times a year. And it was a hardcover book, but it was a magazine. And uh, I mean, I've just started to get into it. And man, they like I mean, they had like, great people. Frank DeFord wrote for them sort of regularly. Um, you know, certainly in the 70s, and I don't know, maybe I'm more inclined towards things in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, because it's just closer to my era. Um, but there was a magazine called New Times that lasted from like 73 to 78. Um, I think it might have even been, I don't know if it was out on the West Coast, but Robert Sam Anson was one of their feature writers. Oh, yeah. They yeah. did lots of interesting stuff. And yeah, he was, was a like, Nixon, Nixon biographer. Yeah, and then there's like, I don't know, there's like, I'm sure tons of like little music magazines or, you know, once you start getting into the subcultures, there was a magazine that was really like Inside Sports before Inside Sports called Jock. Uh, and there's, there's like never heard porn. of it. When was that published? Well, there's like gay porn magazines called Jock, but like this is like sports <laughs> jock. And, and it was published for like eight issues in 1969 and 1970 in okay. New York by a guy named Mickey Hershkowitz, who is uh, actually from Houston. Uh, but he came up to New York to, and, and it was a New York sports magazine, and then it was going to become regional, I think, and they just ran out of the money. But, you know, I mean, they had Red Smith, and they had uh, Larry Merchant, and they had all sorts of interesting guys wow. in there. So there's those, like, there's lots of, like, little interesting runs that magazines had. And then certainly in the 80s, like, when New York Woman was around, there was a magazine called Manhattan Inc., that like, sort of focused on New York and big business. I remember that magazine, actually. Yeah. Adam Moss had a magazine called Seven Days, which at first was a free magazine. Um, and that was sort of like a weekly, like, you know, this is what's going on around town and in your neighborhood. But then they also ran features, you know, big features. Uh, and that, but I think that only maybe lasted less than two years. You know, how long did the National Sports Daily last? Less than two years, probably, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, so there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, I, for me, I mean, obviously there is a limit, but right now I'm still in the place where, uh, you know, there's still so much that I, I haven't even gotten to yet. But when I get there, what's great to have something like the Stacks Reader is to have a vehicle where as soon as I get it, I get to share it, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that, that part of it is, uh, it's essential for me. How are you going to monetize the site? <laughs> that's the big question right alex this the sixty four thousand dollar question yeah you know uh i'm still like working on figuring that out uh certainly because i look at this as cultural preservation um being affiliated 
either with a journalism school, mm -hmm. uh, uh, an archival program. I mean, you see the stuff that the Harry Ransom Center does down down in Texas. It's just incredible. Um, I mean, me membership. Have you thought about that? Possibly. Definitely thought about membership subscriptions. You know, there's a couple of sites that I follow who are even within the last couple of years, everyone's trying to refigure out. Or figure out just what you're talking about. How do you monetize this stuff? Uh, do you do you send a newsletter? Do you not send a newsletter? And I don't know that there's any like with everything else in the media landscape now or the the cultural landscape. I don't know that there's any rules uh, or that no. anyone or that there's a there's a, that there's a real path. I don't know that anyone really knows. Um, well, I mean, we're facing the same questions with the Sunday long read. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a labor of love. It's free. You know, uh, Jacob and I do it in our spare time. You've been a huge contributor for us, and we've loved our affiliation with you. But, um, you know, nobody gets paid. It's all volunteer work. And uh, I'm lucky enough that I've got a, a, a job, you know, that, that allows me to do it. Um, but it's also costing us money. You know, it's, yeah. it costs money to send out. You know, we've got uh, more than 13,000 subscribers. That's a big chunk of money every year that goes to MailChimp out of my, off my credit card. You know, yeah. so at some point you think, okay, membership or something. And Jacob and I have been having those conversations. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that, you know, I will figure out as things unfold. You know, I have to say, for me, it's not that I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make a living, right? So, yeah, you know, it's you not have like to, I, absolutely. I, I don't have you my don't head. You don't, and don't apologize for it, right? I mean, it's like, yes, yeah. That's right. That's right. And I, and I don't have my head in the sand about that, uh, about, you know, these considerations and, and, and how that's going to unfold. But there is part of me, I don't mean to be naive. I don't like, you know, if you build it, they will come. But on a certain level, I, I really have to focus on the things that, the reason I'm doing it. Because look, if I was trying to make a lot of money, it wouldn't be reprinting old stories, right? Right. You know, it. <laughs> so yeah. there's got to be a happy medium in which I, you know something can work out. Uh, and I and or, I do. or or curating long form stories as we do in the newsletter. I mean, you know, there's a there, it's a niche, pulp, you know, it's a niche offering. Uh, there's an audience. It's found a pretty large audience in a short amount of time, but you're not going to get rich doing that. That's correct, and you know, at the same time. You know, I could, I've done tons of things, you know, professionally that are, have been less than engaging that you have to do to pay the bills. And that's certainly, you know, I mean, when I was working at Time Inc. for 13 years, I was launching a writing career by, you know, getting up extra early in the morning and staying up extra late at night and felt uh, I wasn't resentful that I had a nine to five job. I was grateful for it because it allowed me, you know, to spread my wings in other ways, uh, you know. Eventually, you just sort of have to let your nose lead you to what it is that makes you want to get up in the morning, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, you're also a writer, a, a writer of, you know, a very distinguished writer. And I want to talk about that aspect of, of, of what you've been doing, too. And, and I wanted to tell you that Glenn Stout, um, who uh, is um, the... Best American Sports Writing Series founder and um, the sort of the, the guru and the master of that of that great series. Um, uh, when I asked him about you, he said something very very interesting. He said, "You know, he contacted me twelve or fifteen years ago, and I first thought, who the hell is this wise ass kid with all these questions?" He, <laughs> sa he said, "Alex, that you were like a puppy, impossible to not like." 
even as you were jumping up and down and scratching you on the shins and with all this enthusiasm, but he said you were absolutely genuine. And I didn't realize that Stout edited your fantastic piece about uh, the great boxing writer George Kimball, which made Best American Sports Writing. And and Glenn told me another anecdote that I wanted to share with our listeners and, and ask you about. He said when you were working on that piece toward the end, he was making these, you were making some changes that uh, that Glenn actually didn't agree with. He thought they were lousy and they were weakening the piece right up against the deadline. And he said something that I just smiled when I, when I saw his account of this. He said, you didn't take it personally at all. You agreed with Glenn's judgment. You changed back uh, the way it was without any complaining at all. You got it right away. Um, and Glenn said he was trying to be diplomatic about it with you. And you just said, no, no, no. The reader doesn't care how the story becomes good, only that it's good. Yeah, well, you know, Glenn is very much like a guy, he, you know, like Shulian, although I've known Glenn longer. But, you know, because Glenn, first of all, Glenn came to sports writing through poetry. You know, so he has that sort of artistic frame of mind that he wasn't just a jock, although he, he was a jock, too, in his own way. Um, but he was somebody just because, you know, he's the executive editor of the, or the series editor of a Best American Sports Writing. I mean, he just introduced me to a ton of people. And not only that, once I eventually went to go visit him, I saw that, you know, for every, if they pick 25 stories every year for the Best American, you know, he gets hundreds of submissions and he saved all that stuff. So there was boxes down there. So he was somebody who really encouraged me, but you know, what I did have, I, I didn't put myself through, I didn't go to journalism school, but I put myself through sort of my own journalism school by meeting writers and editors and talking to them and just being, you know, curious as hell. So yeah, I, I just blitzed people with questions. Uh, I, I didn't know how to write, but I figured, well, I, I have a, some sensibility here of what makes a story. And if I start to learn from, once I started to write a little bit, Don, I felt like I found that if I had a draft, I could send it to people and they would help me, you know? So, I mean, to me, that was great. And yeah, there's a certain ego that goes into, you know, writing a story. You don't want, you want to think it's perfect the first time out. Uh, But my attitude has always been to embrace editing. I like working with editors Um, because I haven't been writing my whole life. I don't feel as if, I don't know if that it's an insecurity, but uh, I'm pretty mod- I feel pretty modest about my talent uh, for what it, for what it, you know, what it's worth. I'm even stuttering about my, over myself talking about it, you know? <laughs> no, but it's a very mature viewpoint that you have, Alex. And, you know, um, and, and as you say, maybe it's because, you know, you came to it later and you're modest about it. Um, well, I was pretty cocky when I met Glenn because I'm in my early 30s, right? You know, I talked to, you know, Mark Kriegel? Oh, yeah. Mark's okay. one of my oldest friends. Okay. So Kriegel's great, right? Because, you know, he's got that New York, you know, he's like, he's, yeah. so, he's so fucking New York, you know. <laughs> and like, and I was talking to him uh, like last year and he was telling me, he says, yeah, you know who the worst person in the world is? He says a 31-year-old. He says because <laughs> he says if you're arrogant and you're 22, you can like excuse it, you know. But he says it, it took me until I got to my mid 40s until I realized that like I was at my most arrogant in my early 30s because I just lived long enough to think I knew what I was talking about. And he's like, I didn't know shit. Yeah, know? well, let me tell you something. I met Mark in 1987 at the Miami Herald. Okay, uh, he was a staff writer. 
uh, in the Palm Beach, the West Palm Beach Bureau of the Miami Herald, and I and I was an intern. And the first time I met him, uh, I got a call. Um, actually, actually, the call came in uh, to the desk, and it said, you know, I need to talk to Mark Kriegel. And I think it was my first day there or my second day there. I didn't know who he was. And uh, it was somebody, it was a cop, I think from Riviera Beach. And he said, look around the newsroom, the guy wearing the pink socks, that's Kriegel. Sure enough, <laughs> there was a guy with pink socks. You know, it was Miami Vice era. And Kriegel and I became fast friends. And let me tell you something. He was that way, you know, in his 20s. Um, I mean, he says at 31. I mean, he's he was a he was an arrogant prick when he was young. But he also had talent to burn. And, uh, right, and right. He, you know, and, he, and he's fantastic. But, yeah, it's true. When you're 31, um, that's probably the good age where, you know, you've done it for a while and you feel like I can I can conquer anything. Well, I was new to writing, but I was certainly, I felt sure of myself in lots of ways. So when I first met someone like Glenn, you know, like if I had started writing in my 20s, I would have probably been a lot uh, more callous. I would have probably attacked people, been much more critical. I knew by the time I got, when I started blogging to be, I was a little more even-handed as a person personality, you know? And there was a couple of times where Glenn actually would like, you know, have my back. You know, I would write something about, a sports writer and I'd publish it on my little blog and Glenn would be like, yeah, you know, don't know if you really want this out there, you know? Um, so I had people that sort of looked out for me in that way. That's great. But I, but I always looked at, because I don't really feel like a writer, I always felt like anything I wrote, I looked at it as a collaboration <laughs> with either the people who would help read drafts or editors that worked on it. And that collaborative back and forth for me, felt really exciting and engaging. Like, I really liked that part of it. So, um, yeah, as to your original point about what Glenn said, at a certain point, you get enough distance emotionally from what you've put into writing a story. And for me, it's just like, well, what, what can make it better? And I think I had a tendency to just completely never let something go and probably overwork it and i remember glenn there's definitely a couple of times where he's like yeah you're kind of gilding the lily here like just like lay off you know and th you need guys that can tell you talk to straight to you at that point you know i mean it's really important you really do and uh it, it's amazing i talk to young writers all the time in fact i just talked to a young writer last night um i'm not gonna identify her here she's she's at another publication but she was complaining to me that she's not getting editing and you know it, craving editing when you're in your late 20s and 30s knowing what you don't know i mean i i was always wired that way when i was young too and i think i still am i mean you know no story is perfect and editors always elevate it and i was just struck by what glenn said about you because i thought for somebody who didn't really have a lot of experience doing this and as you say didn't go to j school and everything else that's a that's a smart mature way of doing it before we move on i do want to mention uh, your George Kimball piece in a little bit more detail because I want our listeners, we're going to link to it with the podcast. So I recommend highly that folks go and, and click on it. The piece uh, is entitled The Two-Fisted, One-Eyed Misadventures of Sports Writing's Last Badass, which is a great title, by the way. And I, I reread the piece last night and it's just fantastic. Uh, and it was, as, as we discussed, um, selected for the Best American Sports Writing 2012 edition that's an incredible honor, uh, Alex. I mean, you didn't have a lot of experience. You write this thing and it gets into BASW. What was your reaction when you found out? Oh, I mean, uh, I, I was enormously uh, gratified uh, by that, uh, partly because, um, you know, I got to know George a little bit. 
And by the way, that title, all the credit goes to Tommy Craig's and the guys at Deadspin. I mean, it's such a Deadspin title, and they're the ones who put that title there. And although Glenn did look at drafts of it and some other folks did, Tommy Craig's was the final editor on that piece. Um, but it was, it was an enormous uh, honor. Uh, and as I said, I'd gotten to know Kimball a little bit. And George was suffering from cancer, and he passed away in the summer of 2012. And I had almost gotten something ready, you know, and you know how the news cycle goes, and you're like, yep. oh, God, I have to have my appreciation out and within four hours, you know. And I just looked at the piece, and it wasn't ready. And I spent about another three months on it. And so that decision to spend more time to get the story right and actually pete dexter did look at a couple of drafts of it and he gave me some amazing wow, how cool notes. is how cool is that oh my god Gosh. i mean just, just just that alone i mean one thing that's helpful about having a father who's very critical of you after that it's it's all downhill you know i remember you know dexter was like dexter kind of looks a little bit like chet baker you know, dexter kind of talks like this a little bit and you know and he says to me he goes geez, you know, this must be the, like, the worst fucking sentence you ever wrote in your life, you know? And, 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 and then he would say awful complimentary things as well. And, and, and he lives out in Seattle, and, and I, he called, like, we got woken up at, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was Pete. And Pete said, oh, God, I, I hope I wasn't too hard on you. <laughs> you know, like, and I said, are you kidding me? You just made my story a ton better. Like, I didn't take it personally. I mean, you know, you weren't humiliating me. You were telling me that this line, this sentence was bad sentence. And it was a bad sentence. But you know? it was bothering him in the middle of the night after it sort of laying, laying waste he, to you. right? Yeah, that he thought, you know, and I thought, <laughs> no way, man. Like, you're just, you're, you're just making this better. So the idea that I... So the, the fact that I spent more time on that piece, I think is what helped make it as good a piece as possible. And I, I looked at it like uh, about six months ago and I thought it held up well. No, it, but, it absolutely holds up. But there was part of it, and I think this is maybe just the limitation of the form, that I did feel queasy about in that, you know, I'm taking a man's life and, I, and I'm reducing it down to like a magazine idea. You know, here's this guy, he's a really interesting character, but he wasn't as great a writer as he thought he could be. Well, that's a pretty harsh judgment for a fucking 40-year-old guy to make on a, on a 70-year-old guy, you know? And I, 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 would, I would have hated the idea that it would have been thought as a facile thing, you know, that you're trying to reduce somebody. Um, you, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, that you're not really giving them... The, I know the, what you mean, but I, I'm not so sure I agree with you. Um, okay. You know, that's our that's our job. And, right, you know, right. I, I was I was making harsh pronouncements about people in my 20s at the Miami Herald. And, yes. you know, it's what you're it's what you're paid to do. And I, I, I hear you. I get it. I mean, it, it's, you know, the empathy that you have is genuine for sure. Well, you know, what's funny is in, in a certain way, that's why I, you know, I look at other writers, journalists, you know, and, I, and I'm like, I, I just don't know that I would have the stones to be able to write certain stories because I, I, I am like, I'm like, a, I'm plagued with wanting people to like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. obviously, you know, when you take on certain assignments, you know, you have to be a professional. You write what you discover, you know? Um, but, you know, you think about a guy like Wright Thompson or Chris Jones, and, and they're good guys, but they'll, they'll go for the story, man. They're, that's, what they're, that's what they're after. 
That's what you have to do. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you 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 it's not a popularity contest and uh, and particularly when you get access, that's the tricky dance is when you get access to somebody. I had access for a summer with Jerry Jones and yeah. and spent a ton of time with him, but the story I think is pretty tough on him. You know, you just when it's done and you know, you're done drinking Johnny Walker Blue with him, you got to sit down and and just you got to be tough and 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 write and write what you know and write what you see and there were some pretty harsh judgments I made about him as a general manager and uh, a lot of his insecurities and everything else. And you can't, you can't check that at the door and, and not write that, um, you know, just because you had a good time and you want to remain, you want to remain buddies. It's just, uh, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, That's right. I remember one time talking to Richard Ben Kramer about it and he said, you know, the only, the only promise that you need to make is the contract between you and the reader. You that's know, right. And, and you're serving the reader. That's it, you know. That's it. Yeah, no, that's that's very succinctly put and and uh that has to animate you every day, every moment as a journalist when you're reporting and 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 when you're writing. Um, you know, you're you're there for the reader not not to to, you know, continue some relationship. And you know, there's a lot of reporters, I mean, that are access oriented only or they're on beats that do that can't piss off people. It's a much that's much more challenging uh, for them um, to take a really hard look at someone that they're going to need, continue to need on a beat, whether it's covering an NFL team or, or, or whatever, covering a city hall. That's right. And, and also it goes back to the idea uh, of, of how important it is to have a great editor um, because th- there's somebody who's going to have just that step back kind of objectivity about a story. And certainly working at Esquire with guys like Michael Haney, who, who's there now, or even briefly I was there with Peter Griffin and Mark Warren under the David Granger era. And when you talk to the really, really good editors, they're as much of artists as writers are. I mean, it's, it's an invisible art. And I remember one time in the movie business, I remember reading something that Bernardo Bertolucci, the great director, once said about uh, his film editors and that if any one of them ever won an Academy Award, he'd never work with them again. Uh, the idea being that it's the invisible art. And, uh, you know, just the idea that so many of the really brilliant editors, you know, that their real talent in life is not only matching writers with subjects and, you know, that kind of structural thing, but that they're able to help somebody realize the, their talent. I mean, I think that's a really fascinating skill to have in life. It is, and it's so it's such an unselfish impulse too. I mean, an editor gets editor's name is not on the story. An editor has to just live entirely vicariously through the success that's uh, and, and all the glory that only the writer gets. Um, it's tough. I, you know, I I did it for a year at the New York Times. I was a player coach, and I was an editor, and I I just didn't have the stomach for it. Too many meetings. You're chained to the desk, and um, you know, I wanted to do my own thing. Uh, and and I think that that says something. You know, I'm, I wasn't unselfish enough to do it. I mean, the, plus the, you have to be a like a part time therapist, and I mean, there's a oh, lot yeah. of sort of hats that you have to yes, wear. That's true. And you have to like it. You have to like the fragility. You have to not only empathize with it, but you have to like writers, you know, and understand that they're like actors in a way, you know, they're, they're egotistical and fragile. Um, Or or, or it's like being a football coach. You've got a different, you know, every writer has a different personality and you've got to deal with those personalities and be sort of, you know, um, you know, fast on your feet enough um, to sort of pivot um, depending on what, you know, head case you're dealing with at that moment. 
That's right. I remember, I remember talking to Tony Kornheiser and Kornheiser was like, I needed the editor to help tell me what the story was. Once I found that out and understood that, the typing, the sentences, all that, I could do that. I don't need any help, but I need someone to, whereas a guy like John Shulian would be like, no, my whole thing is I, I'm, I'm coming up with the pitch. I'm, I'll give it to you the whole thing, soup to nuts, which isn't to say one is better than the other, but that just that they're all different. And then, and then, and then the hardest ones for editors are, are somebody who like Shulian will think that they know what the story is and they actually don't. They're, you know, they're buried in the weeds and they can't get out. They have so much information, but they're convinced it's what they say it is. And then editors have to be like, no, it's not, you know, That's Um, that's, that's right. That's the real hard case. Um, to me, to me, the, the best, the, the best uh, description I've heard uh, that is a trait that all great editors share is something Ron Rosenbaum told me, and he said that all great editors are charismatic listeners. And I thought that was really, really interesting in how something that you would think of as passive listening um, can be so galvanizing to a writer. And often it's because these are people who are incredibly busy and just to get somebody's attention for five minutes, you know, not, the phone's not ringing, you're not checking your email and that they're really listening to you. Um, that, and that also helps draw the creativity out of the, the writer, you know? I mean, like, I thought that's, that's really cool, man. That is a really cool thing. Fantastic. Descri- I've never heard a description of, of an editor like that. Rosenbaum is is another huge talent um a guy i follow on twitter a great guy uh, too um has your work given you any insights about what makes a great writer like like what what you think is really uh the sort of toolbox that a great writer must have or or sort of traits that uh, that you admire in great writing I mean, and you're talking about more like journalists or writers in general. I think writers in general it doesn't have to be journalism. Well, I, I read, I was reading about Capote recently, and I, I saw some quote from Somerset Mom where he's like, you know, you can't be a writer and a gentleman, you know, at the same time. And you know, and or, or what was that the 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 Nora Ephron thing? You know, what her mother told her. You know, everything is copy, right? Yes. Um, you know, so that's right. Yeah. Use every use everything, every single thing in your life. You've got to turn into copy and make, make yeah. Money and off of it. listen, yeah. there's there's consequences to be paid for that. You know, I mean, often I find myself, oh, I'll look at something like a, a writer I really admire has written, and I say, well, I'm just so depressed. I'll never even write anything else again. Why why bother? You know, these these guys are so. But then you're adoring somebody's work without taking in the full picture of everything that they might have sacrificed to do that. Uh, they might have sacrificed having interpersonal relationships or being a good parent or, oh yeah, I love this guy. This, this woman's a great writer, but she's been married four times, you know? Right. And so, you know, I, I try not to God up, as Stanley Woodward said about uh, the ball players. you know, you try not to God people up too much, even though you really admire their work. And as you said, the stuff that I'm doing I'm, with the stacks, I'm such an enthusiast that part of me is just promoting, you know, things that I like. But um, I don't know. I think one, one quality is just that, is that a writer has to be curious. I mean, they really have to be led yeah. by their curiosity. I don't know if empathy is the right word because I don't know that all great writers are empath- empathetic. Um, that certainly helps. But um, to me... And like, or, or like, if you're going to talk about like a journalist, I mean, I'm like a columnist. Yeah, you have to have a sense of moral indignation about the world. I mean, that's why Charlie Pierce is still so great, you know, because Charlie Pierce is still fucking pissed off at the, you know, I mean, 
Charlie doesn't have a problem getting his Irish up about stuff. He's outraged. You know? He's he's outraged twenty four seven. Yeah, and you need to be to do yeah, that job well. For you sure. know, so so like, but that's not necessarily a quality that would lend to long form writing or to novel writing or you know. So I think there's probably you could probably drill down and find people that certainly can do all sorts of you know work in all sorts of mediums like W.C. Hines, right? He's like a five-tool player. He wrote novels, he wrote long-form pieces, he wrote columns. He could do a lot of stuff, whereas Red Smith just did the column. Red Smith didn't want to do anything but the column. You know, he the, same thing with, I mean, Maury Kempton won National Book Awards, but Maury Kempton was happiest when he was doing his column. Yes, yeah. You, you, you have your story today, you report the story today, it's out tomorrow. What do you mean this lead time where I got to talk to fact checkers and copy editors? You know, like that would just be brutal for him. So I think that there's generally writers probably have uh, their niche that they're they're best at. Um, but I don't know. For me, I always come back to curiosity because if you're not curious, like how could you write? You know. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I was nodding as when you said empathy. I think empathy is very, very important, even for an investigative reporter. Um, you know, my buddy Seth Workersham and I talk about this all the time. You know, even when you're doing a very, very tough story um, that's going to end up kneecapping somebody, empathy is important. Um, you got to be empathetic, even as you're as you're doing the very toughest stories. It's it's and, it's, and also it's very open, right, Don? That's because, right. Because you could be like totally. Yep. Yeah, you could be like, hey, you know what? I'm walking in to do this story on Martina Lavratilova, and this is my preconceived notion of her. And you want to have that, but then be willing to completely be surprised and turned around. You know? Um, yeah. I also, wherever the reporting leads, absolutely. That's right. I also feel that you know, there's writers who are stylists and there's writers who are great reporters. Um, and to me, the ones that are great reporters tend to, I think, uh, outlast the ones that are great stylists, but maybe thin on the reporting. Um, because I think you can overcome pedestrian style sometimes if the reporting is really great. Um, that, that's just like a generalization. I but agree. I agree with you. I think that's right. I think that's right. And certainly now, uh, more than ever, people are hungering for great reporting, for, you know, learning things they didn't know about uh, previously. Um, people appreciate the stylists, too. They're, they're important. But great reporting right now is, um, you know, as, we're, as, as you're seeing, and you're seeing it in the metrics, the stories that get the most clicks and the most discussion are, are, are stories that tell you something you didn't know the day before. Um, we're running out of time, but before we go, I want to ask you about the time you called David Halberstam. What happened? Oh, Halberstam. <laughs> I called David Halberstam. I was at work at Time, Inc. He calls me back. He says, oh, this is David Halberstam. And, you know, Halberstam was one of those great guys. He was in the book. You know, I mean, it, Marvin Miller was in the book. You know, I love guys that you just, you can find, you know. And uh, Halberstam calls me. I had a work call, so I had to put him on hold for a second. And at my work job, I always just call people by their first names. So when I got back on the phone with Halberstam without really thinking about it, I said, hi, David. And he, he, he dressed me down. He said, do you think you know me well enough to call me by my first name, young man? You're something like something like that. And I didn't really break stride because I've always been used to being around adults. So I wasn't really flustered. I was like, oh, I'm totally sorry. I apologize about that. You're, you're completely right. And, and then he was wonderful with me. He was great. But um, I, I wasn't even really taken aback by that. I mean, Sure, you could just—I don't know—you got to kind of accord people there a certain gentlemanly respect. So the Timesman, you know? who always in his in his copy uses Mister, is David. The first time you talk to him, 
He was David to me, uh, <laughs> although I should have known. You know, and then there's other guys you call by their first name, and they're like, what the hell are you doing? Call me by my last name. You know, call me, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, don't be ridiculous, you know. But it's always better to be often a little formal at first, you know. So, Alex, a couple of weeks ago, we published um, your fantastic oral history of Inside Sports. Um, I, I was privileged. You sent me a copy of that months ago, as you know, and I read it, you know, in one big gulp and loved it. And, um, um, you know, it, it, I loved that magazine as, as a kid. Um, I was a Sports Illustrated uh, devout reader. But when Inside Sports came out, I and I love sport magazine too, but inside sports was just, you could tell right away it was different uh, at at a different level. Um, And I just loved your oral history and, and we were thrilled um, to be able to publish it. And I wanted you to just tell listeners, what was your, why did you do the story? Why did you feel compelled to do it? And how much of a fan of uh, inside sports were you as a kid? I knew Inside Sports as a kid just from the newsstand, you know, just like I knew Sports Illustrated. But I didn't read magazines then. I just looked for the pictures. I just thought they were cool-looking pictures. So I was just aware that Inside Sports had been around. But it wasn't until, you know, I started doing my research for my Kurt Flood book that I really encountered it as a, a literary property. And then I just thought, wow, this was a really... Interest- and a lot of names that had been introduced to me, they all seemed to have written for it at, at, a, at a certain point. So... Uh, you know, I got to know John Walsh and Jay Lovinger and Pete Bonventry, who were the three mm-hmm. really main editors there. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to reprint some of the stuff on the stack. So why don't I do like a little introduction? And a little introduction led me to spend, you know, quite a bit of time tracking down as many folks as I could from that magazine and uh, finding out their story. I think what really led me to spend so much time on it was that I found all these people super interesting. And I th- you know, that time, you know, 1979 to 1982, I was around. I mean, I was, you know, I was 8 to 12 years old. Uh, but still, I remember New York in those days, and that's where Inside Sports took place. So there was a kind of affection that I have for that part of my childhood. Um, but really, the thing that stuck me around was there were just so many interesting people involved with that magazine and a lot of wonderful talkers. And the reason I decided not to make it into a straight reported piece and into an oral history is because when you have guys like Kornheiser and, and, and uh, Richard Ford and, you know, all these guys, I thought, well, what the hell do I know? Let them tell the story. I mean, these, these are great voices. Uh, you know, it's like the part, the, the part of me that loves Broadway Danny Rose. You know, like you like hearing guys talk. You know, in this case, guys and gals, you know, you want to hear them talk because they were just awfully interesting folks. Yeah, and, and they're and they're natural, great storytellers. And it's just it's fantastic. We'll link to it for any listeners who missed it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Alex's uh, phenomenal oral history of inside sports. Man, I can't thank you enough for this. We've uh, we're, we had a hard out on timing. We've passed it by a few minutes, but uh, I can't thank you enough for all this time today. You've been a huge friend uh, to the newsletter, to Jacob and me. Anytime we need something, Muhammad Ali passed away. We asked you to you know get the best curated pieces for us in like a day and a half. You you come through always. Um, so thank you for that, and uh, much success with the StacksReader.com. I can't wait to see it, and uh, I know our listeners are going to uh, check it out. It uh, sounds great. 
Oh, my dude, man, it was, this has been great and we'll, we'll certainly be continued to be involved moving forward, but this was a, it was a real fun chat. I appreciate you having me, man. My, my pleasure. Uh, best of luck with everything. And, uh, and there are many whiskeys in your future. So, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get together soon. Uh, this has been Alex Belf. Uh, his new site, the stacksreader.com debuts today, uh, the Sunday that this podcast drops. Uh, Alex curates at Esquire Classic, the magazine's digital archived. Um, Alex is a great friend of the Sunday Long Read, and uh, we're just thrilled that he made time for us today. My name is Don Van Natta. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to be back soon with another great guest. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.